This show is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, the Justice League of board game podcasts. Find out more at Dicetower.com. Welcome to another episode of the Family Gamers Podcast. This is episode 306. Hello, everybody. We are super excited to bring another show to your ear holes. We are the Family Gamers. As always, I am your host, Andrew, and I am joined by my lovely and wonderful wife, Anitra. That's me. We have a new setup in the studio this week. Hopefully, it'll fix some of our sound issues. I hope it sounds good for all of y'all. We don't even know. We have no idea. This is episode 306, crazy, again, that we are still doing this thing after like seven years of doing this. But as always, I have a fact about our number, my dear. I do. I do. I also have a fact about I our saw number. that. I saw that you put a fact in here about our number, and I was so, um, I wasn't surprised by it, but I was like, darn it, this is my thing. And you took it last week, and now you have another fact, so I still put my fact in here. So how are we going to do this? Are you going to go first, well, ladies this, first? Well, this is the fact that I found last week, and it was too good to pass up. All right, go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll defer. So in the year 306 that is of the Common Era, that is when Constantine the Great began his reign when his father, the Tetrarch Constantinus I, died. This is important because the Roman Empire entered a new era under Constantine, who is also the first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity. Scholars mark his reign, starting in 306, as the turning point between the ancient era and the Middle Ages. Yeah, he was a very significant ruler in uh, a very. lot of different ways in Rome. So, yeah, there you go. 306. And, you know, cities like Constantinople were named after him. What about Istanbul? I mean, that was after it was Constantinople. <laughs> All right, well, my fact is not quite as uh, legendary, I suppose, but it's an interesting one nonetheless. My fact is that the optional form 306, the OF 306, is basically a job application for the federal government. Okay. So it's the official form that you have to fill out if you're applying for a job to the federal government or if you're a contractor who's applying for a gig with the federal government. It is the official form that is used. Okay, sure. I thought that was kind of cool that that's the fine Constantine wins. How about a, how about a sponsor fact? Do you want to, you want to do a sponsor well, fact or, or am I doing this one too? No, I can do that. <laughs> All right, go ahead. You know, that feeling of wanting to finish a movie just because you paid for it or when you think you may as well finish a too long game, even though everyone is miserable. That's called the sunk cost fallacy. Just because you've already invested resources into something doesn't tell you if it's worth that next bit of resources to see it through. If you aren't enjoying book one, why keep going just because it gets really good, quote unquote, in book five? If you need a sounding board for your life's financial decisions and avoiding the sunk cost fallacy, go to firstmovefinancial.com slash family gamers. Set up a time to talk to First Move Financial for free. All right. Thanks so much to the team at First Move Financial for sponsoring another episode of the Family Gamers Podcast. And each year at this time in the show, we talk about the games that we've been playing. Are you ready to talk about the games that you've been playing? All two of them. <laughs> so I think technically mine is two, but I've also been helping some other plays along. So I'm going to include those as well. That seems fair to me. Okay. All right. Do you want to go first? I think it's the same two games. Uh, it should be the same two games for yeah, both of us because you're on my list. Yep. Let's talk about Calico. Calico is a wonderful game. We really, really like it a lot. And we used it to uh, to play a game with a, a mostly non-gamer, I think. Yeah, a not particularly gamery friend. Um, and she definitely caught on to it and enjoyed it. It is a little brain burny, but only in terms of like, how do I fit this puzzle together? Not a, what are the rules again? Yeah, this is the first time I've played Calico since I played Cascadia. And mm -hmm. I I really spent a couple of minutes kind of thinking through my thoughts on this game to figure out, like, do I still feel the same way about Calico? Do I still feel the same way about Cascadia after playing Calico? Mm -hmm. Blah, 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 blah. And I, I really think the answer is yes. I like the fact that this game is so constrained because... 
cut down on your decision making in a lot of ways, which makes the puzzle for me a little bit more interesting because I'm never really one of those people who's like, I have to have the max, max, max. I, I just want to have the better you know, as compared to you I know, mean, my peers. You like min-maxing, and Calico definitely has some min-maxing involved. Yeah, yeah, but that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm trying to say is, like, I'm not the kind of person who would look at a game like Calico and say, you know, if the game just let me put one over here instead of sure, over there, sure, it would sure. be a better game, right? And that's kind of what I feel when people talk to me about why they like Cascadia better than Calico. Sure, everything about Calico is more constrained. It's not just the fact that you have a board with specific goals on it, mm -hmm. and you have to fit within that board. It's also the fact that you only ever have two tiles in your hand, and then once you play one, there are exactly three tiles to choose from, ever. And I mean, that absolutely adds to some like puzzle frustration when you're oh, playing the oh, game. Oh, yeah. Right? Because the, oh, yeah. You know, the right air quote thing just keeps not coming up or whatever you know that translates into. But that's fine. I mean, I think that's part of the game, and I think that's something that's enjoyable about it. Right. I mean... I feel like Calico, to play it well, you begin learning how to keep your options open for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. You know, grab the thing that could work, you know, when you see it. But like, don't lock yourself into, okay, the only thing I want to put in this place is yellow polka dots. Well, I don't want to put anything else here. Yeah, but eventually, I mean, eventually you'll get to you'll the get point to that where point. you have to yes. do that, right? Yes. And, and, you know, one of the things about the restrictions of Calico is that in some ways, like the criticism that it ends up being a little bit about luck, it's kind of a legitimate criticism. You know what I mean? Sure. Because if you are lucky enough to get the things that you want, then it's going to work out. Now, like you said, I mean, it's incumbent on you to uh, strategically keep your options open. But at the end of the day, if you just need the yellow thing with the feathers on it, you need the yellow thing with the feathers on it. I mean, yeah. So, I mean... I understand that perspective, but I still really like the game. I love the whole pattern kind of thing along with the stuff with the cats as like a sort of a separate thing. But then you also have like the color chain stuff. So I, I really like how many puzzles are laying on top of each other. Right. So you've got so many different puzzles that are all working in the same space at the same time because you've got your three goals that you're working on, mm -hmm. which any one of those you could throw out partway through the game and be like, you know what? I'm only working on this goal for patterns and I no longer care what color goes in here. Right. Yeah, or I'm only working on this for colors or whatever. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, you've also got the wanting to make groups of the same color so you can get buttons in that color and wanting to make groups in the same pattern with some other restriction to get cats. Sure. And all of those things... Like you said, they all kind of lie on top of each other, and it really affects your decision-making. And at the end of the day, like, that's the difference between Calico and Cascadia. Like, in Calico, you have to have pieces that fit multiple puzzles at the same time, whereas in Cascadia, you're just kind of fitting your puzzles next to each other. Does that make sense? Like, you have to have yeah. kind of multi-use pieces yeah. in Calico, and you don't in Cascadia. And kind of, In fact, I don't really think that it makes sense that you would in any way. I kind of feel like in Calico, most pieces you put down, not every piece, but most pieces should be fulfilling multiple point-giving options. In an ideal scenario, yeah. But again, sometimes that's just not possible. I mean, sometimes it's not going to happen, mm -hmm. but yeah. All right. So that's Calico. So the next thing I want to talk about is the game that I kind of facilitated. So this is not a game that I played technically, but I was involved in the playing of this game. And I could have played the game. The game structurally doesn't require... Uh, you know, a game manager or anything like that. But just the way that we were playing and the way it all worked out, it just was easier to play it separately. And this was Quest Kids from Treasure Falls Games. So the f original Quest Kids came out a little while ago. Uh, it was very well reviewed by the Dice Tower. And I understand why. It's a really nice, super entry-level dungeon crawl. So, Anitra, you've actually played the main Quest Kids game, right? Yes, I have. So what do you think of it? I think it is a great introduction to dungeon crawling it is very straightforward very simple too simple for adults really mm -hmm. it is intended for kids and it shows but it's very well designed within that and as an adult playing with kids i like how simple it is and how fast it moves this is not a game that's keeping your kids at the table for an hour yeah i mean you know, one of the big criticisms of Quest Kids from basically older gamers is that it gets to feel a little bit samey. So in this game, what you are doing as your player is you are 
entering the dungeon. It's Tolk's dungeon. And the whole dungeon is filled with these gray or green or red face down cards. And the red ones are all kind of all on one side. And movement is really not restricted basically at all. There's no concept of moving X number of spaces or whatever. You just go from card to card uh, as long as there's no wall in the way. And uh, you flip it over and do what it says. And sometimes it is you have to fight a monster, and I'll talk about that in a second. So, and other times it is you can pick up these resources. So there's three resources in the game. There's wisdom, there's magic, and there's strength. There's three large stacks of these kind of generic token cards, basically. And you pick them up and you have a collection of them. When you flip over a, a monster card, it says basically you need two of this kind of, re- of resource and one of this one and one of this other one to beat this monster. And you just pay the cards and you're done. And that's the the primary mechanic of the game. Now, one thing about this game that's really cool is that it has this deck of what it calls kind kid cards. And so if you flip over a monster that you can't beat, but one of the other players, because this is a loosely cooperative game, it's like a cooperation game. If another player has the resource that you need, say you're missing one power, you can say, hey, can you loan me a power? And if they do so, then they loan you a power, you defeat the monster, you get the benefit of defeating the monster, but the person who loaned you that, however many things they loan you, they get a kind kid card for each one of them. And these kind kid cards are rewards of various sorts. Sometimes it's extra turns, sometimes it's more resources, sometimes it's just straight up victory points. It could be all sorts of different things. And so it's a really neat way to engender that cooperation, even though technically this is a game that has a kind of a, a winner, basically. Call that co-opetition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of the base game. But recently, this year, Treasure Falls released an expansion to Quest Kids, which introduces a campaign mode. And this has been really interesting. So we played, you know, I don't know, three to five games of Quest Kids without the campaign just to kind of get a feel for the game, understand the baseline game. And, I mean, we're already at the point, you know, our youngest is eight, where... The baseline game is fine, and it's good, and it's great for younger ages, but it's it's a little samey at this point. I mean, at least it moves fast, but it's like, all right, we're moving through, you know, we're going through the motions, we're doing the thing, okay, next, 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 next. And so it is getting a little bit samey. Uh, I, I, th- I think, again, because, you know, our 11-year-old is kind of too old for this game, and, and that's fine. But the campaign introduces narrative. So this is a five-part campaign, and we've played the first two parts of this. This is something that we will review, so I'll talk about it in a little bit more detail, but obviously I don't want to, you know, give away much of the story. But what I will say is that the two different campaign episodes, scenes, scenarios, whatever, that we've done so far have been dramatically different from each other. One of them was finding hidden cards. The campaign setup involved taking away some of those face-down cards that are normally in the dungeon and replacing them with cards from the quest list thing. And once those six cards are found or five cards are found, it creates you know a riddle that you can solve. And then the second one was very different in the sense that it was chasing around uh, some things that you had to stop on the map from doing something else. So the very different and I'm really interested to see what happens in 3, 4, and 5. I already have looked at the setup for Scenario 3, and it's very clearly different from both 1 and 2. So even though there very definitely is a sameness to the way this game plays, the campaigns themselves are definitely dramatically different. And I think like with Campaign 2, with Scenario 2, whatever you want to call it, the kids kind of cleared out the plot parts of it, and then they were left with half the board being the legacy game and they just kind of went through not legacy like you know um just the regular continuing, game. but regular yeah. game and the kids you know had to kind of go through and, and complete that and that's fine uh, but uh, again you kind of get a little bit of that samey kind of thing there so yeah i think we're going to go through the campaign i think the kids are enjoying it they're 35 to 40 minute kind of sessions to go through this thing not dramatically changing the game in in tons of huge ways that would make it more complicated making a little bit longer but not a lot longer. yeah and i would say to anybody who has quest kids you know that game's got an insert that holds all the pieces fairly nicely but also wastes a bunch of room so you could very easily put the campaign materials in the base box on this one Sure. If that's something that you wanted to do as well. So I think we'll go through the campaign and then we'll probably be done with the game. But I think that's primarily an age thing with our oldest. Maybe this will be something we'll give away. Okay. So that is uh, Quest Kids. And then the campaign is something about Tolk the Wise. I don't remember what it is. Exploring the dungeons of Tolk the Wise or something like that. 
All right. Well, our last game to talk about is Tall Tales, <laughs> which, interestingly enough, is a game of competitive storytelling. It says yeah. that right on the box. Story writing, excuse me. <laughs> this is a really interesting game. Kind of weird. Very cool. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. The basics of the game are that you get a prompt of some sort, and then everybody writes, like, what's the next thing that happens off of that prompt? You shuffle them up so, in theory, you don't know whose is whose. They all get read out, and then everybody votes. I mean, this is the basic idea, right? This is how it becomes a competitive story writing game, because obviously you want your story piece to win. You are likely to get more points if it does. But you'll also get points for things like voting for the story piece that got the most votes. So there's a little bit of consensus idea in there, too. Yeah, I mean, look, this is a game that architecturally, structurally is, you know, right out of that greater apples to apples mold, right? I mean, that's oh, definitely. that's where this thing came from. But instead of having just a, a hand of cards that you, you know, pick something to line up with, haha, so funny, you know, a la Cards Against Humanity or whatever, you're actually creating a story. And when we played this game, I had a narrative in my head and I don't know that my story ever actually got selected. I don't think so. But every every time somebody else's story got picked, uh, you know, we would kind of read that thing and then we would have to write the next piece. And I would continually bring it back to my narrative every single time, but in a way that fit with uh, what was actually being selected. Yeah, I, you, I, would, you would pull little pieces of your setting back into every bit of the story you tried to tell. I Yeah, I, I mean, I had an absolute blast doing it. I did get writer's cramp, which I haven't had in years because I'm a programmer. <laughs> yeah, it was really weird. This is not the kind of game I would normally play. Okay. But, oh, I just, it's not. I don't see myself as a great storyteller, even in collaboration. I struggle with some RPGs that really want storytelling and, and things like that. And it's something I've worked on the last couple of years because I want to encourage our kids to go down this path, at least somewhat. And I found that this game, although I would not have sought it out myself... It was really good at both giving prompts for, you know, hey, get your brain moving in this direction and leaving a enough openness to really run with it in whatever direction you wanted. And it was a really good balance there, which is, I think, the key to the game, because in theory, anybody can write a story or a story fragment, right? But in practice, it's a really hard thing to do unless you've had a lot of practice at it. Yeah, so the way the game actually works, you flip over a card, very Dixit-like. It's some weird, oh, yeah. weird thing. And whomever is the, I don't know what the title is, the person running the round, we'll say, selects, for lack of a better term, a phrase that has to be included exactly in the story and some kind of narrative plot point that also has to exist in the story. This comes off some cards. There's, you know, selection rules and stuff like that. It's not terribly complicated. So that all gets presented. And then there's a timer for, I think, three minutes. Does that sound right? Three minutes. Sounds say it's about a three right. minute yeah. timer. And you just write. And it's just whatever. I mean, the thing that I really enjoyed about this game was one of our friends. <laughs> so we played this game with a, a married couple and we knew the husband was a great storyteller. I mean, it's just it's part of his character. I didn't realize the wife was as good of a storyteller as she is as well. And it was interesting. You were not the only one who kept bringing back certain striking elements over and over again into your story of like, no, really, guys, this is important and this should be in the story. Whether it was workplace safety or <laughs> teenagers so doing dumb stuff. So dumb. I loved it. Or, you know, an <sighs> epic romance Everybody who kind of picked a thing early on kept coming back to that thing and be like, no, really, guys, this is an important part of the story. But I think that. But it was great. It. I really think. I mean, it was really a lot of fun. It was really, really enjoyable. There was a lot of laughing. There was a lot of people finishing their story and then laughing like to themselves. Yes. You know, yes. Um, and that that thing that you're mentioning where people kept pulling their own stories back in. 
I mean, you know, there were only four of us, so everybody knew whose stories were whose, but it was kind of part of the fun, and none of us are vindictive, so it's not the kind of a thing where we would vote not vote for someone's good story out of spite. Right, you know what right. I mean? It also was, like, super validating, way more so than any other game where there's community voting, for someone to vote on your thing, because it's something that you created, as opposed to, like, like even a game like Bring Your Own Book, it's still something that somebody else wrote, so you're not quite as attached to it as these kind of bit stories do you know what i mean yeah i do because even a game like like champion of the wild which we talked about years ago now Mm -hmm. which you are kind of creating at least a story framing (laughs) um, about why your animal should win this event it's still it feels like bs i mean (laughs) it does i mean that's kind of what you're doing you're bsing your (laughs) way through it yep this is not you are collaborating to make a story even as you're competing and trying to make the best next piece of the story. Mm -hmm. And so it does feel really, really good to get voted on and even to vote and be able to give your, you know, your kind of two cents towards, man, I think this was the best one outside of mine. (laughs) Right, because you can't vote for yourself. So, I I mean, I I agree with all of that. This is going to be really interesting to play with the kids. And, you know, I mean, we might do something where, like, we set a three-minute timer. You and I stop at three minutes. The kids go for six, like for another three, so a total of six or something like that because they definitely struggle with being creative out of whole cloth. It helps that there's the picture. I mean, that's certainly yeah. a helpful thing, you know, so it's not like, all right, just write a story. You know what I mean? So I don't know. It'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see because I think our kids surprise us sometimes with the stuff that they come up with. So I'm really really interested to see how this plays we can't play this with our eight-year-old for two reasons number one he can't write fast enough and number yeah. two his writing is already messy enough <laughs> that it would just be an exercise in frustration but i think our 11 year old and our 13 almost 14 year old can handle it i feel like this is a game we should keep him around for and if he wants to tell a story extemporaneously maybe we let him try that i mean we'll all know it's yeah. his but that's okay yeah i'm, I'm not against the idea i mean look one of the things that I'll absolutely say in the review for this game is that you really don't need the game in order to play this game. Sure. You, you don't. But but I do think that the cards are well-crafted to kind of nudge you along. Yes. And get everybody thinking, not necessarily in the same direction, but along the same playing field, shall we say. Yeah, but I mean, I just like 7 billion people in the world have Dixit, right? Like, so just take, you could take those cards and just play this game. Sure, like, but you, I'm you not actually talking card. about the picture card. Okay. I'm talking about the word cards. Sure. If you just gave me a picture and would like write a story about this picture, I could get there eventually. Mm-hmm. But once you give me a story card and be like, by the way, this has to be a romance and it has to include the words at the worst possible time. <laughs> okay, that really gets my creative juices flowing of how do those two things possibly fit together and then set them in this setting? Yeah, and I mean, I, I still feel like that's something that could be pretty easily self-generated, but it's not it's not a bad thing that the game exists. I'm not saying that at all. And I, I you know, I really do enjoy what they're going for. I just... It's almost like addressing the elephant in the room. It's like, look, this can totally be put together. I understand what you're saying, but I I gently disagree with you because I would not come up with as good combinations in the cards as what was there. Okay, and that's fine. That's totally fine. So, well, that is Tall Tales, a competitive story writing game. And uh, that's it for games this week. (laughs) It's so sad. I can't wait for school to start. And us to uh, paradoxically have more free time. We'll see. <laughs> anyway, it's just been a tough couple months, and we're really excited to kind of get back at it. I think it's a lot of it is just having a schedule that will maybe block out the right time, you know, for us to do those things. So, anyway, so that's that. Uh, why don't we welcome our uh, new community members before we take a break? How does that sound? That sounds excellent. We have. Two new community two members. Two new community week. members. And I will start us off by saying welcome to Jordan. And welcome to Magica. Magica is an awesome name. Welcome to the group. We're glad you're here. I hope that you are finding the content in the Family Gamers community interesting. I'm really enjoying a lot of the stuff that like Nick is sharing and uh, Dwayne Sherrill is sharing and really all the people that uh, are, are putting some stuff in there and talking about games and asking questions. Ken Walter talking about Quest That was pretty awesome. 
I'm really, really super thankful that we have people that want to share their love of gaming with other people who want to share their love of gaming, especially with their kids. So yeah, we're thankful that you're there. All right, let's take a break. And uh, we never introduced our topic. So when we, we come back, we will talk about some room to grow. We'll be right back. Dog. This is 2022. We're not supposed to treat our children like pets. But we're all dogs <laughs> in Pavlov's Dogs. This is a snap review for Pavlov's Dogs. Pavlov's Dogs is a cooperative memory and cognition game from Heather and Chris O'Neill and published by Ninth Level Games. Up to eight people can play in about 20 minutes. The box says it's for ages 14 and up, but this is a game you can definitely play with younger gamers. We included Elliot here when we played. <laughs> it did slow us down a little bit, but it worked just fine. Pavlov's Dogs has a cute art style that we like, but there isn't a ton of art in this game. There just aren't a lot of components to it. You got the test folder, the rule cards, the bone tokens, and the playing cards. Our favorite piece is definitely the rule cards. These are a treat for any student of psychology with dog names like Abby Maslow, the dog tour of Doggy Needs. And Sigmund Fetch of Big Dog Ego. Do you have Big Dog Ego? Uh, possibly. <laughs> they are, of course, all the goodest boys and girls. The playing cards are clear and simple, and they need to be. They come in three colored suits, yellow, brown, and blue. They're numbered one through five, and they have commands like sit, speak, and fetch. There are also gray bell cards with the value zero, but several of the rules change how the bells work. Speaking of how things work, Andrew, let's talk about the mechanics and how you play the so, game. So start by giving every player three bone tokens. Players will take turns being the dog tour each round, making sure the other doggies follow the rules. Each round, the current dog tour adds a new rule to the test folder. After reviewing the rules, the dog tour hides the folder, deals five playing cards to each other player, and the round begins. The starting player flips the top card from their pile. They announce the value of the pile plus their card after following any of the hidden rules that apply to the current card. So let's say this rule is out, requiring a player says hi before putting a speak card down. If Elliot flips this speak card down onto the stack with a current value of 20, he needs to say hi and then play the card into the center, ending with the total value of the center pile. 23! All of the rules for pass rounds would stack up at this point, so Elliot might have needed to do a couple of other things, depending on what rules were out. In this case, Elliot followed all rules correctly, so Anitra, as the dog tour, gets to say good dog. And then it's time for the next player's turn. If Elliot failed to follow a rule, like this one that says subtract yellow cards, or gets the math wrong, the dog tour must tell them they are a bad dog. Then they tell them what they did wrong and take away one of their bones. The central power resets to zero after a mistake, and the next player around the table takes their turn. Play continues until all the doggies have exhausted their five-card piles, but you immediately lose the game if any player runs out of bones. When the round is over, if you haven't lost already, pass the folder to a new dog tour who gets to add an additional rule. At this point, you can redistribute bones if one player is having trouble. Keep adding a new rule every round until you've beaten the desired difficulty level, three, five, or eight rules, <laughs> or one player runs out of bones. If you didn't run out of bones, you can check your grade in the rule book after you finish. So Anitra, what did we expect from Pavlov's dogs? Well, it's really unusual to see a game in such a small box that plays up to eight players, especially if it's not a trivia game or a guessing game or something like that. With a name like Pavlov's Dogs, I expected plenty of puns and some science education. The rules were a little tough to decipher. Ninth level games leaned a little bit hard on the psychological test theme and the dog puns. And that meant it took several reads through before we were sure exactly what we were supposed to do. Once we started playing, we had a great time. You can tell from the rules and from the cards that this is a game that does not take itself seriously. So 
there were some surprises. What surprised us about Pavlov's Dogs? Even though this is already kind of a silly game, you can play it seriously to test your memory. There's even a team mode for really competitive types where each team is following a different set of rules. But the game also offers a chance to replace one of the easy sets of tests with silly tests to make it even more ridiculous with actions like sticking out your tongue or sniffing your bones. Pavlov's Dogs actually gets harder the more you play it. You're more likely to misremember and follow rules from earlier games. Playing this one back-to-back -back is especially difficult. That was a huge surprise. Ugh. I expected Pavlov's Dogs to be educational, given the name. But the way in which it helped our kids the most was actually math, not science. Of course, there's a ton of material here that can lead to conversations about Pavlov and his experiments, but mental arithmetic is something that people just get better at with more reps, and Pavlov's Dogs provides that in spades. It's also just hilarious. It is hilarious. So, Anitra, do we recommend Pavlov's Dogs? Pavlov's Dogs is a fun game for group play. While it's definitely playable with two players, we much prefer it with at least four, even better with more. When you pick up this game, you might be tempted, based on the art, to play it with your youngest gamers. While it can flex down to gamers as young as 7 or 8, I mean it did for us, the psychology puns and the recommended age of 14 plus on the box suggest that the game is intended for silly science fans. We think the truth is somewhere in between the two. We are going to rate Pavlov's Dogs three bones out of five. And that's Pavlov's Dogs in a snap. snap. So we're going to talk about Room to Grow as an agent teased before the break. This week, we're going to talk about a more focused Room to Grow. Would that be a fair way I think that's that? a fair yeah. way to put it. Yeah. Sometimes we say things like worker placement games. This week, we're going to talk about set collection dice games. So our goal with Room to Grow is to bring your kids, your family, through a series of games that grow in complexity. We're going to start with a game that shows a mechanic very simply and then move up towards a game that is more complex, and then one that's even more complex than that. So, set collection dice games. What is it? What is dice set collection? Well, I mean, the prototypical dice set collection game is Yahtzee. Sure. So something where you're rolling dice, possibly multiple times, and trying to get a certain result, you know, spread out amongst many dice. Yeah, and that could be like a straight, you know, something like that. Or it could be a set of multiple dice of a kind. Uh, it could be any number of things. The thing that differentiates dice from cards is that the faces are not fixed. I mean, there's, you know, six faces on a six-sided die. Mm -hmm. But at any given time, you could have a straight available or you could not have a straight available. Sometimes it just I mean, doesn't come, yeah. Yeah. So with that idea, you're going to roll dice... You're looking for some combination of results, and you may or may not get to reroll dice. Let's start with the simplest game in this playstyle. Sure. It is Roll For It. Yes, the Chris Leader special, Chris Leader, friend of the show, the director of fun at Calliope Games. At Calliope Games. Mm -hmm. So Roll For It is published by Calliope Games. Mm -hmm. We were thinking about this uh, the other week when I was talking about this on the show. Roll Fort is an extremely simple game to get into. <laughs> yeah. You roll as many dice as you currently have available, up to six dice, and then you take some or all of those dice and place them on cards that are out on the table for anyone to use. Your goal is to match all of the dice on a specific card, and when you do, or somebody does, whoever matches that card exactly with their dice takes the card, representing points that they get. Everybody who had dice on that card gets those dice back, and a new card is drawn. This is a typical points game, so it's like the first person to 30 points or 40 points or something like that wins the game. The thing that makes Roll For It interesting is that there are lots of different kinds of cards. There are cards with just two dice on them. You know, maybe they're the same, maybe they're not, but whatever, you know, a two and a six. If you're rolling six dice, you can probably manage to get that card that has two dice on it. But there are cards with three dice or four dice or six dice. Those six dice cards are worth tons and tons of points, but you really have to commit all of your dice to doing them. And 
unless you fulfill a card, you're not going to get all your dice back at the end of your turn. So say you're going for one of these cards with six on it, and then you roll all your dice and three of them match. Great. You can put those three on the card. You get to keep the other three for next time. Next time, you now only have three dice you can roll. So your chances of matching get lower and lower, even as your chance of points get higher and higher. So a lot of strategic gamers really don't like dice games because they view dice as chance cubes or luck factories or something to to this effect. And yeah, I think this is going to be true probably for all three of these games, but a lot of people really like the thrill of rolling the dice. I mean, that's why games like craps are so popular in casinos is because the thrill of rolling the dice and truly not knowing what's going to come up is really, it can be really exciting. Yeah, it can. And since this is right out in front of you, it's not a challenging game for kids to understand. I mean, this is a everybody can play. If you can match symbols, not even really count, if you can match symbols, you can play this game. It also really helps teach in a very concrete way probability, right? And and not necessarily what the actual numbers are, but it's clear even to an eight-year-old, if I have less dice, it's going to be harder for me to get that one number that I need. And they're able to make decisions about that. I mean, they might not always make the right decision or, you know, they might be stubborn about it. That's our 11-year-old, you know, to a Mm -hmm. T. But they can acknowledge and it's easy to point out, hey, it's going to be really hard for you to do that if you only have one die. Like, it just might not happen. Yeah. The only problem that I've run into with Roll For It and Kids is sometimes they just don't get the fact that if they commit dice to some other card... There is literally no way for them to win a six card Mm -hmm. until that other card goes away. So sometimes that part of the counting doesn't quite match up for kids. But overall, I think the concepts here are very easy to understand. Yeah. And I think that's something that a kid can learn through repetitive play, right? I mean, it's not something where they're going to sit back and boil down all the strategy on their first play of the game and, mm-hmm. you know, consider their tactics kind of thing. But that's okay. It's a fast-moving game. There's a lot of luck involved, and it will finish quickly, and you can start over again. It's not a big deal. Yep. So, say you've played Roll For It a bunch, and either the theme doesn't really grab your kids, or they feel like they've, they're moving past it. The theme? The lack of theme. <laughs> um and you want something that's going to be a little bit more dynamic and exciting. But I mean, who doesn't like big, bombastic monsters? Right? So our recommendation for sort of a mid-level dice set collection game is King of Tokyo. Bring on the kaiju. So King of Tokyo is a game where you are a kaiju. You are battling to be the king of Tokyo. And you accomplish your goal by rolling a set of dice. This is kind of the first game that was kind of coined as a battle Yahtzee style game. Um, Yes, although the thing about King of Tokyo is that you don't need exact combinations the way you might in, say, a Yahtzee. You can have some combination be like, you know what, I have a couple of dice that are smash dice that I can use to take down other monsters' health. I have a couple of other dice that are victory points. And so I am going to use those to get myself some victory points. And then I also have an energy die. I'm going to use that. I'm just going to get a single energy cube. I can't spend it now, but I can spend it later. Mm. So even though you do get a chance to re-roll, as you would in, say, Yahtzee, you're not really trying to match specific patterns. It's just sort of a, hey, the more of these I get, the better off I'm going to be. But this other stuff isn't bad either. Yeah, I mean... It's another one of these games that is relatively quick. It goes a little bit longer. It takes a little bit longer to play a game of King of Tokyo than it does to, say, play uh, Roll For It. But uh, there's definitely, like, King of Tokyo is a game where you can end up with hurt feelings. So it's something that you just kind of have to be aware of, I guess. Uh, You are absolutely fighting each other. You know, if you are the kaiju that is in Tokyo... Other Everybody's going after are you. Are going after you, trying to damage you and get you out of the city so they mm-hmm. can take residents inside. Mm-hmm. The game is a little bit more complicated because not only are you kind of creating these sets of dice that you can do these things with, but also you might want to buy cards that will provide bonuses. And obviously, this is going to require some reading. So there might be a little bit of strategy involved, but. Even that might be as simple as, as long as your players can read, just saying, this card looks cool, I want to get it. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So the strategy doesn't need to be deep and complicated to make a game like King of Tokyo work in the context of a game that your family plays that is fun. But uh, it definitely is a game that requires a little bit more thinking and processing and kind of aligning your pieces and things like that than uh, something like a role for it will be. Because what you're getting and what you're doing is not quite as straight out in front of you. And it's definitely a lot more head to head then roll for it where it's just kind of a race to a goal. Yeah, I agree. So that is King of Tokyo from Yellow. Yeah, so there's also King of New York. I think most people would pretty much say that King of Tokyo is better than King of New York. There's also King of Tokyo Dark, which was supposed to be a limited release, but I keep seeing it everywhere. So I personally think the art looks cooler in King of Tokyo Dark. It might be a little bit more expensive. I think it is a little bit more expensive than the regular King of Tokyo. That's just going to be totally up to you. There's also a bunch of expansions if you decide mm. you really like King of Tokyo. Yeah. There's King of Tokyo Power Up if you want something that adds just a little bit more complexity because you can now make your monsters evolve. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, Andrew. <laughs> We're moving past yes. the giant kaiju. We are moving past the giant kaiju. I want something where I can re-roll my dice but i'm trying to make sets and those sets are going to give me awesome things yeah so uh this is going to be a game that we've been talking about a fair bit recently this is our final game in this particular room to grow series and this game dice set collection battle yahtzee is dice throne so dice throne adds another layer of complexity over say king of tokyo because now you are very definitely rolling your dice to try to attack other people. Mm-hmm. But you have lots of different options on how you can attack based on how your dice roll turns out. You can re-roll just like in King of Tokyo and in Yahtzee. And you can use whatever your character's special powers are to do all kinds of other wacky stuff, which might be healing it might be placing some kind of negative effect on the other player that they can't shake off it might be spending your combat points to upgrade your attack abilities or your defense abilities or do something else entirely you can spend combat points to change the result of a die roll and that might let you get your ultimate attack and it just goes and goes and goes all of the different things you can do you know, I mean, I think probably most of the people listening to the show have at least heard of Dice Throne, but just kind of talk about it a little bit. So Dice Throne Season 1 uh, was released. I think it was just released as Dice Throne a few years ago. Then they released Season 2. So Dice Throne Season 1 had six characters. Then they released Season 2, and they had changed the way they did the character boards mm-hmm. in Season 2, and everyone loved it because it's way better. It is, it is much better. It's way better. So then they released Dice Throne Season 1 re-rolled. Yep. And they also actually added two characters to what is technically, air quote, Season 1. So at that point, you now had 16 characters across Season 1 and Season 2 that you could play with. They're all cross-compatible, and you could just mix them up, do kind of whatever. And now... Well, and now they've just released Marvel Dice Throne, which has another eight characters. And they're still all cross-compatible. Yeah, they are. And they also are super-duper awesome. So I think Manny Tremblay does the art for uh, Roxley Studios and this whole series. And some people have said they don't particularly care for the art. I love it. I, I think, think it's, it's fantastic. Great. I love the way these boards are laid out. I really like just everything about the art style. There's also a Santa versus Krampus two characters set that um mm-hmm. it was on kickstarter it's probably still open for late pledging now if that's you know something that you're into i don't really care enough uh, about that but the game is definitely more complicated than either roll for it or king of tokyo it really really super has that concept of dice set collection the player Very board much. literally have pictures of the dice and the faces that you need to perform the various tasks and i love fantastic. that yes And you can also dial the difficulty up or down 
depending on what character you pick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are some characters like I think one of the ones that you really like is playing as uh, Miles Morales Spider-Man because it's just I punch stuff. Yeah. Or in the original season one, I really liked being the pyromancer because it was basically I punch stuff and I light it on fire. <laughs> and the pyromancer at least didn't have any kind of healing abilities her defensive ability is basically just, I am going to hit you for more stuff because you hit me. I think she was described as the glass cannon <laughs> character where she uh, yeah. hit really, really hard, but yes. you could, you know, damage her fairly uh, easily. Fairly easily. Yeah. I mean, look, these various characters, every single character has their main player board, which has all their abilities. They all have custom dice, which is super neat. All the different characters have different die faces with different symbols on them. And every character also has this like sideboard that describes their special abilities. So there's tokens that maybe if you're Spider-Man Miles Morales, you can web someone. And so you would put a web status token on someone and that would have some kind of effect. So there's a lot of these different kinds of things. Different characters are more or less complicated, like Anisha was saying. Well, in addition, part of what makes different characters easier or more difficult is some of the characters have four different symbols on their dice. Mm -hmm. Because most things you're doing by symbol, uh, other than I think there's a large straight and a small straight and the ultimate, which is all sixes. Yeah. But everything else on your board, every other ability is done by symbol. Some characters have four symbols on your six-sided dice. Some characters only have three symbols on the dice. And when you have three symbols, it is much easier to make the combinations that you want. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's kind of how Dice Throne works. So every turn you draw a card from your deck and you gain a combat point and then you roll your dice and I think you have up to three re-rolls or something like that to try to get the set of dice that you really want. You use that to attack. This is a head-to-head combat game. I mean, you can you can do yes. kind of a two-headed thing where it's a it's a two-on-two, but this is absolutely even more of a head-to-head game than King of Tokyo, which interestingly leads to less hurt feelings because the opposition is kind of openly stated. This is, I think, maybe more specific to our family, but yeah, we really like Dice Throne as a one v one game. Mm-hmm. You can play it as a team game, or you can play it as a free-for-all with three or four or even five players. I have found that when we play with three players as a free-for-all, somebody's feelings tend to get hurt because they feel like they're getting ganged up on, whether that's true or not. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is the same mechanic that in King of Tokyo can lead to problems, where one person is just getting beat on by multiple players. So (laughs) Dice Throne is more complicated. There's no doubt about that, even though mechanically the game is far simpler than a lot of other stuff that uh, gamers would be bringing to the table. But it is an absolute blast. It's super a lot of fun. And I really, really enjoy it. So we have, I think, four of the characters from season two. We have the season one, the original season one set, and we have the Marvel Dice Throne set. And I mean, we could get more, but I feel like we've got enough. We have plenty. Uh, For (laughs) what it's worth... If you want to know even more of our opinions about Dice Throne, we reviewed it three years ago. Yeah, we reviewed the original set and we reviewed those two season two kind of bundles. So if you're curious, you can pick up one of these two character sets for about 25 bucks at Barnes & Noble. And it's a really easy way to get in for a low price point and try out a couple characters and see if... The general structure of the game is something that works for you. Yeah, see how you feel about mm-hmm. it. They have battle boxes, which are on a per character price point a little bit cheaper, but you'd really be going all in if that was something that you wanted to do. Yeah, I agree. So I have one other thing to reveal, which is, uh, it's been a while, but two years ago, we did an episode of Play This, Not That, where we started with Yahtzee. <laughs> and do you know what the three games were we recommended instead? Oh, I, I really hope they weren't Dice Throne, King of Tokyo, and and uh, Roll For It. They 100% were. <laughs> but at That's least funny. we're consistent. At least we're consistent. That's a riot. That That is pretty entertaining. Well, hopefully the show sounds better we're now. We're organizing our thoughts in a different way this mm-hmm. time. We're yes, talking we about are. it with Room to Grow and how to start on the easier end and move your way up to something that's more complicated. And more complicated doesn't necessarily mean better. It means more complicated. So if you like the complicated games, here are other games you can use to get up there. If you don't, that's okay. 
Yeah, I, I mean, these may be opportunities that you have to get a burgeoning gamer into gaming. This may be opportunities that you have to grow your kids in, you know, the the process of gaming. This may be, maybe you played King of Tokyo, you've heard about Dice Throne, and you, you, you know, you didn't really know kind of what it was or how it related or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean... The the primary mechanic here is this this idea of set collection. Like there are really really great dice games out there, like Role Player and your Sagrada and your Dice Forge, right? Mm-hmm. But none yeah. of those are set collection games. They use dice in completely different ways. And so we really did want to focus, and that's why I said at the beginning, it's a little bit more focused than we than we usually do with Room to Grow. Um, and the reason why is because we really wanted to focus on the set collection aspect of this whole die rolling thing. Yes, exactly. So that's going to be it. Uh, You know, if you've got a dice set collection game out there that you really absolutely super love, let us know. I mean, there's a ton of games out, obviously, you know, thousands of games are published every year. We can't see them all, but we would love to know if there are other games that you feel like might fit into this whole room to grow thing with dice set collection games. And there's lots of different ways as you may already know that you can get a hold of us. You can find us on Facebook best place is to go talk about this in the family gamers community that's where we welcomed our two new community members you can find it by going to thefamilygamers.com forward slash community or by just going to facebook and searching for the family gamers community or it's also linked in the show notes that's another place oh speaking of which we got uh some show back talk uh this past week from a show listener saying that our show notes were excellent so that big made me feel kudos good. to Anitra, because Anitra is the one who does the show notes. It was a very, very lovely email from show listener Dr. Michael, who forevermore will simply be known as show listener Michael. We promise. Or possibly Michael from the Game Schooler podcast. That's also a possibility. Yes. Yes. So thank you very much for that letter. It was, it was another one of those weeks. So it was really an email that I needed to get. So uh, we appreciate it very much. It was very, very encouraging. And let me use this opportunity to tell you, listener, send your favorite podcaster some kind of email or social media message to just let them know that you appreciate what they're doing because mm-hmm. it means a whole lot. Don't worry, Michael. I'm not saying that we're your favorite podcasters, but <laughs> if we are, it's just between us. But if we are your favorite podcaster, there's lots of other places where you can get a hold of us. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, or on TikTok at Family Gamers AA. You can check out our snap reviews on our YouTube channel at The Family Gamers. Mm-hmm. We mentioned email. You can email us. Andrew at TheFamilyGamers.com. Anitra at TheFamilyGamers.com. Check out our Family Gamers and Play Games with Your Kids merchandise, t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, and more at thefamilygamers.com forward slash merch. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you have not already. Tell your friends about the podcast if you like it. Tell your enemies about the podcast if you hate it. (laughs) And leave us a review so you can tell strangers about the podcast, whether that's at Apple Podcast or wherever it is you subscribe. Ideally with text. Stars are good. Text is better. I'll take anything, man. (laughs) The Family Gamers is sponsored by First Move Financial. Go to firstmovefinancial.com forward slash family gamers to learn how the team at First Move Financial can help you pile up the victory points. Well, that's going to be it for us this week. All right. This was a fun topic. Fun to talk about this. I am ready to go play some dice games. All right. Let's do it. Well, until next time, play play games games with with your kids. kids.